Well, good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask that you turn in your Bibles to John 14. John 14. At this time of year, as we have just done, we sing, O come all ye faithful. And I would ask you, who are the faithful? Who are the joyful and triumphant that this Christmas carol invites to come to Bethlehem? Come and behold him. Who are the faithful? Are we the faithful? We who lust, covet, practice idolatry by pursuing our own happiness at the expense of others. We who take the Lord's name in vain, lie, steal, dishonor our parents. We who take pride in not committing murder, but have anger toward men in our hearts, which Jesus says is equivalent to murder. Are we the faithful who rejoice at the incarnation of Jesus? It doesn't seem possible. Are we the faithful? You know, this, this, the, the title of the message today, it just struck me. I'm God and you're angry. And I'm thinking, that's him saying that to me. Is that him saying that to you? Are you angry? Are you faithful? Who, what are you? We're so sinful from our birth, we don't have to be told how to sin, we just do it. We love our sins so much, we get mad at those who try to stop us and slow us down in our sin, our, rebel, our rebellion, our anger against God and his standard of righteousness. With great certainty, we are not the faithful, are we? How can we possibly be called the faithful? What makes a man faithful? What makes a man sing from the depths of his heart, at the top of his lungs, oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. You're in John 14, 15 where Jesus defines the actions of the faithful very simply by saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. With this Christmas season upon us, I ask you again, do you love Jesus? Do you keep his commandments? Are you the faithful what is in your heart for Jesus right now, today, where you sit? Honor or hostility? The faithful are those who honor Jesus' words. The faithful are those who believe Jesus is the Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. The faithful are those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, whose hearts are filled with nothing but honor for Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. The faithful know honor for Jesus, not hostility toward him. The faithful recognize that one time in their lives, they were extremely hostile to Jesus. But Jesus ended their hostility with his faithful word. The faithful are not simply those who show up at church on Sunday to do a little religion, to pay a little annual visit to the big guy upstairs. The faithful are not the super spiritual either. The religious elite who are there at the temple regularly, who attempt to broadcast their faithfulness by wearing priestly robes and vestments, the three-piece suit, the collared shirt, and the necktie. The, the faithful are not those who know the exact number of Hail Marys to pray over each particular type of sin. Brothers and sisters, you might already know this, but I'll tell you again, although many people will sing, Oh, come all ye faithful in the next week. Very few are actually faithful 
and have honor in their hearts for Jesus. Many people put on a show pretending to love Jesus, but they love a Jesus of their own imagination. Many people who call themselves Christians and believe they are honoring and faithful to Jesus are, in fact, hostile to him. Hostility to Jesus is not new. Hostility to Jesus was the case in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago among the religious elite in Jerusalem who were supposedly the faithful. The very people who were in charge of leading all humanity in the highest honor of God every week at the temple in Jerusalem actually delivered the greatest hostility to God and dishonored God when they failed to receive Jesus, God's Son, His words and His works. They failed at receiving His message and His miracles, and they crucified the Lord of glory on Calvary's cross. Thankfully, we know exactly why the unfaithful crucified Jesus. It's in our text today. Thankfully, we know that Jesus is God's Son, sovereign over the heavens and the earth and all they contain. Thankfully, we know Jesus is so sovereign, He can turn the predictably sin-filled hostility of men into moments of His greatest glory and our greatest good. This is what we see in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and this is what we see in John chapter 5 as well. John 5 is the story of Jesus' sovereignty and the proclamation of his deity in the face of increasing hostility from the religious elite in Jerusalem. In John 5, the Apostle John reports a third of seven miraculous signs performed by Jesus which captivated the Apostle John's mind. And so he wrote about them. He wrote about these seven signs in his gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is a purpose statement from John 20, 31. So the whole purpose of John's gospel is belief in Jesus unto eternal life. You can only have life in Jesus' name when you believe that Jesus is God. And so look at his signs, see his wonders, and see that they prove Jesus is God. And better still than the signs... We have Jesus' words captured for us. He did not hide his deity from men, but Jesus boldly, regularly, faithfully proclaimed, I am the Son of God, who is my Father in heaven. J.C. Ryle says of John 5, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of His own unity with the Father, His divine commission and authority, and the proofs of His Messiahship as we find in this discourse in John 5. He says it seems one of the deepest things in the Bible, John 5. Edward Clink says of John 5, this monologue serves as the foundation for the rest of the Gospel. John MacArthur titled the section of John 5, The Most Startling Claim Ever Made. You are at high Christology when you arrive at John chapter 5. You need to defend Jesus' deity. Let him do it for you in John chapter 5. Jesus makes his claim to deity in the context of his sovereign sign, his miracle, and the Jewish hostility that arose as a result. In John 5, Jesus returns to Jerusalem for an unnamed feast and makes his way to the pool of Bethesda, just north of the Temple Mount, to find a man who has been physically sick and lame for 38 years. 
As always, Jesus seeks those whom he saves, and never because they deserve his salvation. Such is the case with the 38-year paralytic that he meets. The man is entirely undeserving of saving. He isn't looking for help from Jesus either. He wants help getting down into the water after it's been stirred up because he is himself superstitious. His belief system puts the power for healing in his hands. He just needs to be first down into the stirred up water. Having never been first into the supposed healing waters of Bethesda, he remains a crippled man. He trusts, however, continually this performance-based healing religion and superstition. What he needs, however, is a grace-based healing, one that's outside of him, one that comes to him, which is what Jesus supplies, but not without sovereignly stirring up Jewish hostility at the same time. And so we read in John 5, 8, Jesus said to the man, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his mat and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, and so the Jews were saying to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your mat and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and disclosed to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now from this, we learn the healed man was a rat, a snitch, a tattletale, who was graced with total healing by Jesus in an instant while his own graceless superstition and religion had kept him sick physically and spiritually for 38 years. The healed man is a people pleaser who would rather be found pleasing to his preferred legalistic superstitious authorities in Jerusalem rather than being pleasing to his healer. As a result, the rule-keeping rat has helped his Jewish rulers grow in their hostility and hatred toward Jesus, who is a rule-breaking violator. We read in John 5, 16, And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus is doing righteousness on the Sabbath, healing a lame man, and the consequence for doing righteousness on the Sabbath is hatred from the Jewish authorities? Really? Yes, because Jesus is sovereign over all men, Jesus knows the wicked, sinful hearts of these religious leaders. He knows that sinful men respond to righteousness with hostility and anger. This is no surprise to him, and it should be no surprise to us either. But what should surprise us is this, is the fact that Jesus came to Jerusalem looking for the persecution of the Jews, which he will use for his glory and good, of all who believe in him, because Jewish hatred and hostility and persecution will put Jesus on the cross in little more than one year's time. His visit to Jerusalem is no coincidence. He didn't end up in the temple by accident. He didn't accidentally heal this particular man who remained uh, loyal 
to the legalistic authorities. His visit is intentional. Jesus is orchestrating all the details of his life and the lives of others so that his deity may be made known, even in the face of maximum Jewish hostility and even this man's superstition. So last week I told you, as it relates to this text, in John 5, Jesus has a plan for building up Jewish hostility. You see that in your notes. We can divide this section of text into two phases, two phases for building up Jewish hostility. The first phase I call Jesus' deliberate triggering of the Jews in verses 1 through 9, when he performed sign number 3. Jesus deliberately triggered the Jews. Second, the second phase of building up Jewish hostility after triggering them with a sign. Number two in your notes, you see Jesus' deity trumpeting to the Jews, which happens in verses 10 through 47. Jesus' deity trumpeting. First, you trigger them, and then you trumpet to them the deity of Jesus. This will get hostility. It doesn't take much to ignite the unrighteous anger of the selfish, legalistic, Jewish, Jewish ruling elites. It does take the sovereign control of God to cause the hostility of the Jewish authorities to work out for good, which is exactly what Jesus is going to make happen here. Jesus desires to proclaim to the Jews and all in Jerusalem that he is God. Sign number three, brothers and sisters, presents the platform on which John will report and Jesus will preach, Jesus is God. What's the message of John chapter 5? Jesus is God. That's the message. The man who is healed is healed as a foil. He's a setup guy who sold out Jesus to the Jews just like Judas Iscariot will sell out Jesus to the Jews and take Jesus to the cross. The proclamation of Jesus' deity to the Jewish authorities begins with the testimony, however, not of Jesus himself, but of the rat. Jesus puts the rat to use. It is not Jesus who runs to the Jews to declare his sovereign power to heal the sick and the lame from the pool of Bethesda. The Jews were told of Jesus' sovereignty and deity by the 38-year healed paralytic and reported to us then by the Apostle John. In fact, in our text, in John chapter 5, John reports eight revelations of Jesus' deity that make us result, that, that result in both hostility and honor. John reports eight revelations of Jesus' deity that must result in hostility and honor. It's in our text today in John 5 that John proclaims eight attributes of Jesus' deity that make him identical to his Father. The message is Jesus is God, and Jesus will tell you eight attributes of his deity that make him identical to his Father. What eight attributes of Jesus' deity identify him as God's son, resulting in honor and hostility? Last week, we looked at number one, the first of eight attributes of Jesus' deity, identical to his father. Jesus shares with his father identical sovereignty. Number one in your notes, identical sovereignty, verses 10 through 15. Really, John 5, 1 through 15. We see Jesus shares his father's identical sovereignty in sign number three, the healing of the 38-year paralytic. The man who I've called a rat, who tells the Jewish authorities Jesus healed him so that he could escape their wrath. 
He was healed from 38 years being lame, but he's more concerned about what the Jewish authorities will do to him. Jesus is sovereign over all of this. He's sovereign over the man's healing because Jesus made man on day six of creation from the dust of the ground and knows precisely how to resolve all of man's physical ailments. Jesus is sovereign over the man's healing because Jesus found him at the pools of Bethesda. Jesus is sovereign over the man's testimony because Jesus found him again in the temple in Jerusalem and revealed to the man who his healer was because previously the man didn't care to know, and so Jesus tracked him down on purpose so that when he went to the authorities and tattled on him, Jesus would have a certainty and assurance that he knew his name. Jesus is sovereign over the man's testimony, because when he tattles, he tattles accurately, saying Jesus made him well. Jesus is sovereign over the response of the Jewish authorities, hatred, persecution, hostility, He didn't make their unrighteous hatred, persecution, and hostility. That's brewed up in their heart. But he sovereignly knew that it would come toward him. The Jewish hostility against Jesus is not passive either, is it? They're not going to sit around on top of their anger. Their hatred turns aggressive because Jesus has violated their man-made rules. How dare Jesus, in his arrogance, heal people without permission in Jerusalem? How dare Jesus work signs and wonders and miracles on Saturday, the holy day? How dare Jesus operate outside the boundaries established by the government, the ruling Jewish authorities? How dare he? When the real question is, friends, how dare mere men try to stop the Lord of the Sabbath from doing righteousness on the Sabbath? Are these men in charge of the Sabbath? Do their rules rightly represent the Lord of the Sabbath, as Jesus claimed to be in the Gospel of Mark? Is it the case that Jesus is more or less honored by the healing of the sick and the lame on Saturday? When does Jesus avail himself to offer care and concern for the sick and the lame? Should that come with parameters and boundaries and restrictions? Should it only happen during specific hours and times of the day or seasons of life? Or is Jesus' healing more ubiquitous? Is it more readily available? How available is Jesus' healing? These questions bring us to the second attribute of Jesus' deity identical to his Father. The second of eight attributes of Jesus' deity identical to his Father is, number two in your notes, identical availability. Identical availability, verses 16 through 18. Jesus shares this with his father. We read in John 5, 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Jesus' twin use of working creates the equality with the father that he wants to establish. However, the operative words here in verse 17, the most troubling for the Jews, the words of confrontation are my father and until now. The Father is not an uncommon expression in the Jewish mind for God, our Father in heaven. But when the possessive pronoun, my, is placed in front of Father, something uncomfortably exclusive is being communicated that demands further explanation. For instance, it would get really awkward if I started talking to you about my Father in heaven. When we all know 
that we all share same, the same access to our Father in heaven. Perhaps in my personal prayer life and in my personal journaling, a few my fathers could be understood. But to openly, publicly use my father would become very incendiary, inflammatory, provocative, meant to even stress a point. Leon Morris says, the expression my father is noteworthy. It was not the way Jews usually referred to God. Our father in heaven was expected, comfortable, common, says Morris. Morris goes on to say, Jesus' expression, my father, implies a claim that the Jews did not miss. And what about the words until now, which are temporal words, time-bound words, words that speak of time and days, seasons? What is Jesus trying to communicate by saying up until this very moment and continually even now? What is he trying to say with these words? He's saying that his father's effort is endless and unceasing. It's a claim to availability, to access. It's just like in this season where we buy gifts and put them under the tree. Don't forget that you need the help of the battery and the energizer bunny who keeps going and going and going. It's just like Denny's which you can take your friend to 24-7, 365. So too, Jesus' Father is open, working, going, until now, never to stop ever. And so too, Jesus is just like his Father and will be found working even today on the Sabbath. This is a claim to deity to unceasing availability and endless concern for, of the Creator for His creation from the very first moment of creation. Jesus is on duty. He's on the job. He is Lord, God, Creator, Redeemer, and Friend. And His time of service and availability have never come to an end. Surely we all understand from Genesis 2-2 that God completed His work of creation on the seventh day and He rested on the seventh day. Sure, we all understand that. But friends, does his rest mean that God stopped working on the seventh day? The answer is no way, never, not a chance. R.C. Sproul notes that deists believe God acts more like a watchmaker. Have you heard of the watchmaker analogy for the activity of God in relation to creation and thereafter, I'll explain it to you. It goes like this. God created all the pieces and built all the systems and mechanisms for humanity and the cosmos, just like a watchmaker builds watches. And when finished building, the last task was to wind up the creation, as it were, like a watch and step out of the picture and allow the creation to perform the way it was built without needing the creator's intervention. R.C. Sproul says, God did not simply create the universe and then step out of the picture. God created all things and continues to sustain them. He doesn't bring, just bring the world into existence, but he continues to preserve and maintain it, says Sproul. Now, you should know this. You should know this. Of all people, you should know this. You should know this about yourself about your form, about your frailty. 
When the weather comes upon us and it's a little drier because the moisture is laying on the ground, and what does it cause your hands to do? Dry and crack. And are you in control of that? What about your heart? What about your mind? What about your four, six, eight, some of you 10-hour rest? What about your rest? The unconscious state that you're in, who's in charge of that? What about your nervous system and your muscular system? Do you realize how much help you actually need to live? Who's sustaining you? Tell you what, somebody right now, try to stop your heart from beating right now. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. You can't do it. That's the point. God is always working, even in the beating of your heart right now. He is always available. He is always comforting, caring, choosing, gracing, loving, redeeming, and blessing the creatures of his creation made in his image and likeness. The Jews know this about God and believe that God is fully operational at all times in whatever capacity he needs to be working. Jesus' deity claim is built on Jewish accuracy at understanding God's availability and continual service to creation. He's, he's basing his argument on their good theology. John MacArthur says, even the rabbis themselves acknowledge God's Sabbath rest from his creative work does not stop or end his unceasing providential work of sustaining the universe. Jesus' statement that he works on the Sabbath just like the Father was nothing less than a claim to full deity and equality with God, and his words served as a subtle rebuke to the Jewish legalistic system. Jesus is identical to his Father in availability from the moment of creation. You, friend, can cry out to him today for help or at any time when you have need. And you can know with certainty that both Jesus and his Father are listening and they are available to comfort you and to help you in your time of greatest need, be that Saturday or Sunday or tomorrow, Monday. Our God does not sleep. How well did this claim to identical deity and availability with the Father go over with the Jews? We read in verse 18. For this reason, before the Jews, or, uh, sorry, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own Father and making himself equal with God. Persecution, friends, wasn't enough. Jesus had pressed the issue of his identical deity with his father so far that Jewish hostility takes up the task of killing him. And the irony in verse 18 is thick and rich. John MacArthur says, by accusing Jesus of wrongdoing, these religious leaders were actually doing what they charged Jesus with doing, impugning the holy nature of God himself. Where these Jews believe themselves to be the faithful in Israel, their unbelief in Jesus makes them perfectly unfaithful. In, they, they entirely misunderstand the God they claim to defend. And this is itself the height of irony. But I would have you notice that in, in the setting of this massive irony in verse 18, it comes with a vast amount of clarity for us who believe. There's so much clarity here. It's perfect clarity on the issue of their frustration and hostility. And it is this. They knew Jesus claimed deity and equality with God his Father. 
William Hendrickson says, the Jews immediately understood that Jesus claimed for himself deity in the highest possible sense of that term. Hendrickson says, the author once more, that is the Apostle John, once more brings into clear view the purpose of his gospel. Jesus is God. Know this and believe. The Apostle John is preaching Jesus is God. Unquestionably, Jesus taught John, I'm God, especially at this feast in Jerusalem, from which John was helped so greatly with Jesus' deity and understanding him that he is able to open up his gospel in John 1.1 by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And further in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God, and so comfortable being God, friends, that his glory didn't even require for Jesus to have physical beauty while he lived on this earth. Beholding Jesus' glory doesn't mean that he had a beautiful face. He wasn't so vain. Isaiah 53.2 says, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. Jesus' glory was not bound in his physical appearance. Where was his glory? In his works and in his word. Which brings us to the third of eight attributes of Jesus' deity, identical to his Father. The third of eight attributes of Jesus' deity, identical to his Father, is identical activity. He shares with the Father identical activity. They're doing the same stuff. We read about Jesus' works and activities, what Jesus was doing on earth in John 5, 19, where he says, Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing from Himself unless, he, unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in the same manner. Truly, truly is amen, amen. It is referred to as a solemn formula or a majestic introductory formula. It's Jesus' usual and familiar way of saying to His audience, wake up. Pay attention. What I'm about to say is critical to your existence. When I was at Officer Candidate School in the Navy, I had a Marine Corps gunnery sergeant who taught naval history. You can imagine how fun that class was. Now, the guy covered a lot of material quickly. I learned from him vastly. So I found out one day, after failing his class and correspondingly doing 300 push-ups in 30 minutes in a private session in his office, what I found out was that when he wanted me to retain information for testing purposes, he would strike the whiteboard on which he was writing. That was his solemn formula by which he delivered critical data to the class. Truly, truly is Jesus' solemn formula, and here he is saying to you, pay attention. Pay attention as I explain my relationship to the Father specifically with respect to my activities and my deeds and my works. Jesus is saying, please understand, my doing is tied directly to what my Father is doing. I can't do anything other. In fact, it's impossible for me to do something different from what my Father is doing. We are doing exactly the same thing. Our activities are identical. William Hendrickson calls this Flawless correspondence between the doing of the Father and the Son, which is all part of their eternal plan of redemption, says Hendrickson. John MacArthur says, his works 
paralleled those of the Father in both their nature and their extent, Christ's statement then was a clear declaration of his own divinity. So Jesus stresses the point of his identical actions and activities with the Father by using the Greek verb poieo four times in this verse. Poieo is translated to do, to make, to produce. It is a generic verb used of action and performance over 400 times in the New Testament. And here Jesus is using this common word, stressing that his activities are his Father's activities. No more, no less. The Jews might ask Jesus, well, how on earth can you know what the Father is doing right now? No one can see our Father in heaven and what he's doing. So you're here and he's there. How do you know what he's doing now? What gives you the confidence that you are doing at this moment what God our Father would be doing? If this was the question on the minds of the Jews, Jesus is prepared to give the answer next as we come to the fourth of eight attributes of Jesus' deity identical to his Father. The fourth of eight attributes of Jesus' deity identical to his Father is number four in your notes. Jesus shares with the Father identical visibility. Identical visibility, verses 20 and 21. We read that Jesus has perfect sight of what the Father is doing as we come to verse 20 where Jesus says, for the Father loves the Son. Ah. I'll read it again. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Jesus' Father in heaven would never hide anything from him because of the Father's great love for his Son. Interestingly, love here is not agapao, the highest form of unconditional love. Rather, Jesus uses phileo love, which we understand more as brotherly love or familial love. It is affection and regard of the very highest order. John MacArthur says, this is the only time in the New Testament that phileo is used to refer to the Father's love for the Son Turn in your Bibles to John 10, 31. John 10, 31. For Jesus, proof of the phileo love of God for his son is identical visibility with his father. His father loves him because he shows him. What the father is seeing and doing is revealed. Nothing is hidden. Everything is disclosed. Visibility with what the father is doing, this is love for Jesus. The Father loves Jesus in this, showing, sharing visibility. The verb translated show is the verb deknuo, which means to show, display, or make known. In John 10, Jesus challenged the authority of the Jews after declaring plainly to them the source of his own authority in John 10.30. When he says, I and the Father are one. You see that in the text. At John 10, 31, we read, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I showed you, deknuo, I showed you, I revealed to you, I gave you visibility of many good works from the Father. For which of those that I've shown you do you stone me? This is deknuo, to show, display, make known. Jesus hid nothing from the Jews, just like the father hid nothing from his son. Same verb. 
Turning your Bibles to John 14, 7. John 14, 7. At Jesus' last Passover feast in John 14, 7. At the last supper in the upper room, John 14, 7. Turn there. This is, in John 14, Jesus' night of glory, where Jesus is showing, displaying, and making known to his disciples explicitly who he is. In a 24-hour period, these men are going to be processing the fact that Jesus was hung on a cross and died and is in a tomb. They need in this night to know with certainty that Jesus is God, to make sense of everything that they've gone through the last three years with him. Jesus must give them visibility of the fact of his deity, his shared identity with God. He must show them, but they're a group that's a little dense, you might say. And so we read in John 14, 8, Jesus says, if you have come to know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all so long and have you not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Deknuo? How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of myself, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. This is Deknuo. Same verb. Jesus has shown the Father to the disciples. The disciples have perfect visibility of the Father when they are looking at Jesus, his son, and seeing Jesus' works in his words. Turn back to John 5, 20. In the same way Jesus showed the Father to the disciples, so too earlier in Jesus' ministry at the unnamed feast in John 5, Jesus declared to the Jewish religious elite in Jerusalem, what my Father sees, I see. He shows me everything that he does. My father and I have identical visibility. Where you can't see what my father is doing, he has shown me everything that he's doing. He is continually in my sight. We are doing great works and greater works are still to come for the very purpose that you will marvel, Jesus says. Now, don't miss Jesus' promise and even his purpose statement in verse 20. The promise is for greater works than have already been displayed, which is in and of itself an incredible promise. Jesus is seemingly going out on a limb saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. Jesus' promise of greater works has an important purpose as well. Don't miss Jesus' purpose statement. The purpose, the reason for the Father and the Son to see and to show greater works together than they have already done is for the purpose of men marveling. Which means that the work of God is not only for God's glory and God's consumption, which is an amazing thought, but the work of God is not only for God's glory and God's consumption, but God's work is shown, displayed, made known for the consumption of humanity in order that men sinful as we are, might believe and see that Jesus is God, the Son of God, and that we would marvel. Believe the works, friends. See what Jesus is doing, what he's revealed, and marvel, and know this. 
Just as Jesus shows humanity the works of the Father, so too the Father was continually showing His works to the Son, though one was in heaven and one was on earth. Jesus always had visibility of what His Father was up to. Perhaps one of the Jews was prepared to ask, can you give us an example of greater works? What, what can you do that will make us marvel all the more today? Help us understand. Give us a sampling of greater works. At John 2.21 or 5.21, we read a sampling of greater works of the Father and the Son when Jesus says in 5.21, for just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. So we have this illustration, this example of the greater works, the raising of the dead and the giving of life. So the question would go like this then from verse 21. Can Jesus raise the dead and give life? When and how would Jesus raise the dead to life? Is this only physical life or physical and spiritual life that Jesus can resurrect? Can Jesus resurrect his own life? Oh, that's a thought for later. This is a bold claim by Jesus and an exceptional test of the veracity of Jesus' identical visibility and deity that he shares with the Father. Go ahead, throw it out there, Jesus, and let's see if it actually can happen that way. Turn in your Bibles then to Luke 7.11. Luke 7.11. Again, it is not a surprise for the Jews to hear Jesus speak of the glories of the Father's character and power, even the fact that God raises the dead. This is good, solid theology proper that ascribes life-giving power to the Father. Amen. The Jews would agree. Leon Morris, uh, for Leon Morris, God raising the dead is not a marvelous thought, however. Leon Morris says, what is a marvelous thought is the next assertion by Jesus that the Son also gives life. That's a marvelous thought. John MacArthur says, the Bible teaches that only God has the power to give life to the dead. And the Old Testament records several instances where God did give life to the dead. I would hope that you know a few of them. A couple of them would be these. 1 Kings 17, 17, Elijah calls on Yahweh to restore the life of the son of the widow of Zarephath. 2 Kings 4.32, Elisha calls on Yahweh to restore the life of the son of the widow of the Shunammite woman. We learn time and again, the divine initiative to restore life is Yahweh's. He is able to give life. Again, this is not a surprise that God gives life. Or an extremely marvelous thought when you just look back at your Bibles at Genesis 2 and realize that Yahweh forms Adam out of the dirt of the ground and breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. Of course God gives life. That's how we're all here, folks. God gives life. What is marvelous is the thought that Mary's baby, Jesus, who is fully man and fully God, that he had in himself the power to raise the dead to life. That's a marvelous thought. What's even more marvelous is the idea that he not only could raise the physically dead to physical life, but he could raise the spiritually dead to spiritual life. <coughs> Excuse me. It doesn't take long after Jesus' time in Jerusalem for him to deliver on his promise, to perform greater works by giving life to the dead and causing people to marvel at Jesus' identical visibility and deity with the Father. This is what we read in Luke 7, 11, where you are now. Immediately after healing the son of the centurion who had great faith, Luke reports in Luke 7, 11, 
And it happened that soon afterward, Jesus went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not cry. He came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother and fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people And this report concerning him went out all over Judea and on all the surrounding district. Just like Yahweh through Elijah raised the widow's dead son in Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, so too Jesus raised the dead son of the widow in Nain. This physical life-giving event would be the first of several instances prophesied by Jesus while sharing his deity with hostile Jews in Jerusalem in John 5. You can turn in your Bibles now, however, to Luke 10 for me. Luke 10, verse 21. The Father and the Son unquestionably give physical life, physical resurrection, repeatedly in the Scriptures. In in John chapter 11, we're going to run into Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But is physical life the full extent of the life-giving power of the Father and the Son? Is physical life the extent What must we know about their spiritual life-giving ability? The Father and the Son are working a powerful plan of redemption. They're working it together. They both have visibility of the plan. They know who is to be saved, which requires the giving of second birth, washing and cleansing from sin. A new heart must be given And a heart of stone must be torn out. A new spirit must be given to a man, which causes a sinful man to become a new creature from the inside out. Alive he becomes, with the power of the Holy Spirit of God taking up residence and living in his heart. This is salvation. This is regeneration. This is the ultimate spiritual life. Not the resurrection from the physical life, but the resurrection of the dead spiritually to life. This is what we're all after. This is what you need. This is why the baby in the manger is our priority this season, because he does this work. It's so needful because all of us, unlike him, we're all born spiritually dead. And only the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit share visibility, share the ability to see and to know personally Who will be saved and when spiritual salvation and resurrection from spiritual death will happen for the elect of God, those who are chosen and predestined for salvation? You're in Luke 10, 21, where I want you to see Jesus has the authority to give spiritual life. At this time, he sent out 70 disciples to preach the gospel. They returned full of joy because they saw Jesus' power physically and spiritually. Then, in this salvation context, Luke records Jesus openly praying to his father, saying in Luke 10, 21, at this very time, he rejoiced greatly in the spirit, Jesus did, in the Holy Spirit, and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
That you have hidden these things, these spiritual salvation things from the wise and intelligent, and you have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If you believe in Jesus Christ today, you're in the text. You're in the text. Anyone. That's Jesus' choice of you. You're one of the anyone that Jesus chose to reveal himself to. Turn back in your Bibles to John 5.22. The Father and the Son have identical visibility of the elect. Who will be saved and who will not be saved. And as a result, it is no surprise that both have the ability to physically bring men back to life. That's the easy side. But far more importantly, to cause men born dead to be brought to spiritual life. There is no difference in the opinion between the Father and the Son on who will be saved from judgment and who will be judged and condemned to hell. There is perfect agreement, which is a big issue. It's not as if Jesus wanted to save everybody in the whole world, and he died and bled, and everybody gets his blood covering and washing over their sins. But the Spirit is inept, and he only causes so many to believe. And the Father only wanted so many believe. And there's disunity in the Godhead because one wants this many and one wants that many. No, there's no disunity. There's no disagreement. The Father and the Son have identical visibility of the elect, who will be saved and who will not be saved. There's no difference in the Father and the Son and their judgments. The Father's desire, however, is that men on earth would honor his Son, who is the Creator, the Savior, and the Judge of all, which brings us to the fifth of eight attributes of Jesus' deity, identical to the Father. Number five in your notes, the fifth of eight attributes of Jesus' deity, identical to the Father. Jesus shares with his Father identical nobility, honor, royalty, identical nobility. Number Five, verses 22 to 24. When speaking of the Trinity, are you, friends, are you familiar with the distinction that theologians make between the economic Trinity and the ontological Trinity? I'm not trying to confuse you this morning. This, this is important for you. The economic Trinity and the ontological Trinity. You need categories, you need buckets to hold theology together to make sense of what's happening in the text. And, and I want you to have these two buckets, as it were, the economic trinity and the ontological trinity. It's in these verses. I'm going to show you in a second. R.C. Sproul says the distinction, R.C. Sproul says the distinction is very important. We all believe, like every Jew, that God is one. Moses says in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And from this text, we understand ontologically, at the most basic aspect of the study of God's being, his nature, his essence, that God is one. And we all say amen. And yet, in the Trinity, in the essence of God, we understand perfectly that our God is yet three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are co-equal in nature, majesty, divinity, and glory. And yet, all three persons of the Trinity economically take on three different activities and serve in three different roles with respect to creation, redemption, and the eternal plan for the consummation of all things. In John 5.22, Jesus is going to tell you that economically, he performs the role of judge, which the Father gave to him. 
And yet in 523, Jesus is going to affirm ontologically that he and the Father share the same honor at the core of their essence, being, and nature. We read in verse 22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Equal honor will be given by all men to Jesus because he serves as judge of humanity for the Trinity. He's the judge. God said so. Jesus' judgeship demands every living being in the heavens and on earth and under the earth ascribe to him identical nobility, royalty, honor, and respect to him that they give to the Father. Paul says in Philippians 2.9 that as a result of Jesus' humility, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, he says, therefore, God has also highly exalted Jesus and given Jesus the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can add to this from Jesus' own mouth his role as judge. From Jesus' many roles, titles, and activities as the Son of the Father, it is plain to see Jesus shares identically with His Father in honor, nobility, royalty, devotion, reverence, and glory. Economically, with respect to their activities, the Father and the Son have unique tasks, but in no way do their activities diminish or mitigate their ontological unity and oneness. The oneness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is indivisible even to the point of their visibility, what they see, what they know, what they're doing together. They have one shared will. Edward Klink says, John 5.23 is pressuring the reader to see the Trinitarian subject matter in view, where God must be understood to at least include the Father and the Son, who are different in function but equal in honor. John MacArthur says, because their wills are in perfect harmony, all judgment can be given to Christ in the assurance that his judgment will be, in fact, the very same as the Father's judgment. He goes on to say, the Father's honor is not diminished by honor that you would pay to Christ. On the contrary, the Father's honor is enhanced when you honor the Son. Jesus' statement in John 5.23 is an identical nobility statement. It is a take-it-or-leave-it statement that demands that every man, woman, and child honor the Son or face His judgment. To dishonor the Father would incur the judgment of the Son and the wrath of God. The only response to Jesus' statement that honors the life that you are currently being allowed to live, being sustained by Jesus, is to honor the Father and the Son who are sustaining your heartbeat. Honor them. Failure to honor the Son would be like you choosing to breathe water instead of air and choosing to eat sand instead of a sandwich. It would be the choice of your present destruction and your eternal destruction. Choose honor. John Heading says, it is not up to man to decide that he will honor one or the other. It is either both or neither. Knowledge of the one, he says, implies knowledge of the other. Hatred of the one implies hatred of the other. Denial of the one implies denial of the other. And in our text today, Jesus is seen as one who is so gracious. Consider that here in John 5, he is giving knowledge of eternal spiritual healing to his enemies. In the midst of defending and proclaiming his identical nobility and deity to his father, Jesus takes the time to explain 
the benefits for men who are receiving his words. And though the crowd to whom Jesus is speaking is full of hatred and hostility to him, nevertheless, Jesus explains the gift of eternal life for all those believing God has sent Jesus to this earth as his son. We see as the summary statement of Jesus' identical nobility with his father, the proclamation of the gospel, the good news that eternal life is the possession of all those who honor the father and the son. Jesus shares the gospel, friends, in John 5, 24, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me, this one has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Verse 24 is the grace of Jesus. Verse 24 is the gospel according to Jesus. These men do not deserve to hear the path required to arrive at eternal life with Jesus forever. They don't deserve it. They want to kill him, and yet Jesus graces them with the gospel, the good news that eternal life cannot be earned, but is given to all of those who simply will hear Jesus' words and believe that his Father sent him. What grace. These are important words. They're introduced with the solemn formula, truly, truly, pay attention. Notice first, two parallel conditions. Eternal life is conditioned on hearing Jesus' words, which in the Hebrew mind here means to listen and obey. This condition is placed in parallel with believing the Father, which effectively means that Jesus is here equating his words with belief in the Father, which really is a remarkable thought. James Boyce says the point of these two phrases is that hearing the words of Christ and believing God are identical. He says this is the main point of the discourse, equality of Jesus with his Father. Pay attention. Notice second, two polar opposite outcomes, eternal life and judgment, death and life contrasted with one another. These are the only two outcomes available to men. Men do not have the ability to create a third option or to ignore and dismiss this eternal life dichotomy established by the Creator. You're not smarter than Jesus. You're not smarter than God. You won't find a third way. There's no third-class citizens. You will either go to hell or you will go to heaven. That's it. Men will either hear Jesus and live or hate Jesus and die. They'll honor Jesus and avoid judgment or dishonor Jesus and face the judge. Before the fateful day of Jesus' judgment of the world in Revelation 20, Jesus graces the world in John 5. And he graces the hostile Jews in Jerusalem with this concise gospel presentation and the summary of his eternal blessings that he will deliver to all of those who hear and believe. And again we say, how gracious and kind is Jesus who is God. While facing death, Jesus' desires to ensure hostile men know how to find eternal life, peace, and joy with he and his Father. Leon Morris says, Jesus saying points to their permanent safety. To have eternal life now is to be secure throughout eternity. Is that what you want? Is that what you're looking for? We live in uncertain economic times. So a lot of people moving all of their 401ks all around, try to find security, peace, comfort in this life. Try to have a home for themselves, and make sure they've got food so that when they're chewing their napkins, somebody can help clean them up. Security, eternally, where does it come from? 
Is eternal security possible? What's necessary for eternal security? Is it really the case that heaven or hell are the only two options? Shall we be concerned about how we live our lives? Can we take Jesus' words for truth? Shall we believe and obey? Brothers and sisters, how shall we respond to the glorious truth that Jesus has been speaking to these hostile Jews in John chapter 5? How shall we respond? If you're here and you're unbelieving this morning, Jesus' words place a demand on your life, and I hope that you wouldn't miss it. I would ask, can you feel the demand on your life? He's God, and you're angry. Why? He's sovereign over you. You can't stop your heart from beating. You can't stop your lungs from pulling in and respirating oxygen right now. You didn't want to start it, and you won't stop it. It's in His hands. And yet you won't honor Him, and you remain hostile to Him? Why? He, he, he came to this earth to prove His love for His creation. And will you scorn Him? Will you look at the manger and scorn Him? Or will you look to the God-man, Jesus, in the manger and recognize that we have a Savior, gracious and loving, kind and patient. And He can save your soul if you just believe. He can save your soul. And for those who are believing, this text has great confidence and certainty for you. And you need to grasp onto it because we live in a hostile world that hates Jesus, that doesn't want to acknowledge His birth, that turns His birth into a celebration for economic growth and activity, the raising of funds and the selling of goods. But He is a Savior and Redeemer and friend to you. He's the judge of the world who warned you. He died for you. He saved you. He will raise you unto eternal life, spiritual, forever with Him in heaven. So you look at the words on the text in John 5 and you see the claims that He's making and you see the promises attached to them for you to know Him. Hold on to them with confidence, certainty, and assurance. And live your life in that assurance, in that confidence. That you are accurately believing in the God of the universe. And that accuracy in believing in Him gives you spiritual life now and assures your arrival at the shores of heaven when you die. This passage is a passage of confidence, certainty, and assurance for the believer. Jesus is God. And to that we say amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to be able to spend it in your word with your people. We pray that this would breed confidence and certainty in us that we are serving the one true and living God. We pray that we would honor him, that we would know that he's watching over us sovereignly from heaven and would change our actions, thoughts, behaviors, and desires. And for those who are not believing that are here in this room, we pray today that their hearts would be broken, that they would answer the question, why are you angry? He is God, why are you angry? And that they would see the call in their lives is to honor the Savior, Jesus. We pray this, that all of us here in this room might be even now participating in an eternal gathering of praise and worship and honor to the King. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.